Part Two of the Judas Valley by Robert Silverberg and Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. The briefing session broke up well past midnight, and the group that shortly would become the crew of the Lord Nelson filtered out of the building and into the cool spring air. Each man had a fairly good idea of his job, and each man knew the dangers involved. No one had backed out. What do you think of it, Pete? Sherry James asked, as they left together. Sounds pretty mean. I wish we knew what the answers were beforehand, Wayne said. He glanced down at Sherry. The moon was full, and its rays glinted brightly off her golden hair. It's a risky deal, as Peterson said. Nine men go out and eight die. Of what? Just dead, that's all. It's the way the game goes, Sherry said. You knew that when you joined the Corps. They turned down the main road of the IES compound and headed for the snack bar. Wayne nodded. I know, kid. It's a job, and it has to be done. But nobody likes to walk into an empty planet like that, knowing that eight of the last nine guys who did didn't come back. He put his arm around her, and they entered the snack bar that way. Most of the other crew members were there already. Wayne sensed the heightening tenseness on their faces. Two nuclear fizzes? he said to the PFC at the bar, with all the trimmings. "'What's the matter, Captain?' said a balding, pot-bellied major a few stools down, who was nursing a beer. "'How come the soft drinks tonight, Wayne?' Peter grinned. "'I'm in training, Major Osborne. Gotta kill the evil green horde from Rigel Seven, and I don't dare drink anything stronger than sarsaparilla.' "'How about the Amazon, then?' Osborne said, gesturing at Sherry. "'Her, too?' "'Me, too.' Sherry said. Osborne stared at his beer. You two must be in Scarborough's new project, then. He squinted at Peter, who nodded almost imperceptibly. You'll need luck, Osborne said. No, we won't, Wayne said. Not luck. We'll need more than just luck to pull us through. The nuclear fizzes arrived. He began to sip it quietly. A few more members of the crew entered the snack bar. Their faces were drawn tensely. He guzzled the drink and looked up at Sherry, who was sucking down the last of the soda. Now let's get going, Lieutenant James. The non-coms are coming, and we don't want them to make nasty remarks about us. The Lord Nelson blasted off the next evening, after a frenzied day of hurried preparations. The crew of sixty filed solemnly aboard, Colonel Peterson last, and the great hatch swung closed. There was the usual routine loudspeaker business while everyone quickly and efficiently strapped into his acceleration cradle, and then the ship leaped skyward. It climbed rapidly, broke free of Earth's grasp, and out past the moon, abruptly winked out of normal space into overdrive. It would spend the next two weeks in hyperspace, shortcutting across the galaxy to Fomalhaut V. It was a busy two weeks for everyone involved. Captain Peter Wayne, as a central part of the team, spent much of his time planning his attack. His job would be the actual climbing of the mountain where the double-nucleus beryllium was located. It wasn't going to be an easy job. The terrain was rough, the wind, according to Jervis, whipped ragingly through the hills, and the jagged peaks thrust into the air like the teeth of some mythical dragon. Study of the three-dimensional aerial photographs taken from the Mavis showed that the best route was probably up through one end of the valley, through a narrow pass that led around the mountain, and up the west slope, 
which appeared to offer better handholds and was less perpendicular than the other sides of the mountain. This time the expedition would have the equipment to make the climb. There were ropes, picks, and crampons, and sets of metamagnetic boots and grapples. With metamagnetic boots Wayne thought they'd be able to walk up the side of the mountain almost as easily as if it were flat. He studied the thick, heavy soles of the boots for a moment, then set to work polishing. Wayne liked to keep his boots mirror-bright. It wasn't required, but it was a habit of his nonetheless. He set to work vigorously. Everyone aboard the ship was working that way. Sherry James, who was in charge of the correlation section, had noticed the same thing the day before. Her job was to coordinate all the information from various members of the expedition, run them through computers, and record them. She had been busy since blast-off, testing the computers, checking and rechecking them, being overly efficient. "'I know why we're doing it,' she said. "'It keeps our mind off the end of the trip. When we spend the whole day working out complicated circuits for the computers, or polishing mountain boots, or cleaning the jet tubes, it's just so we don't have to think about Fomalhaut V. It helps to concentrate on details." Wayne nodded and said nothing. Sherry was right. There was one thought in everyone's mind. What was the deadly secret of the valley? There was another thought after that. Will we find it out in time? After two weeks of flight through the vast blackness of interstellar space, the Lord Nelson came out of overdrive and set itself in an orbit around Fomalhaut V. Lieutenant Jervis, the sole survivor of the ill-fated Mavis, located the small valley between the giant crags that covered the planet, and the huge spherical bulk of the spaceship settled gently to the floor of the valley. They were gathered in the central room of the ship ten minutes after the all-clear rang through the corridors informing everyone that the landing had been safely accomplished. From the portholes they could see the white bones of the Mavis's crew lying on the reddish sand at the valley bottom. "'There they are,' Jervis said quietly. "'Just bones. Those were my shipmates.' Wayne saw Sherry repress a shudder. Little heaps of bones lay here and there on the sand, shining brightly in the hot sun. That was the crew of the Mavis, or what was left of them. Colonel Peterson entered the room and confronted the crew. We're here, he said. You know the schedule from now on. No one's to leave the ship until we've made a check outside, and after that, assuming it's okay to go out, no more than six are to leave the ship at any one time. He pointed to a row of metal magnetic tabs clinging to the wall nearest the corridor that led to the airlock. When you go out, take one of those tabs and touch it on your suit. There are exactly six tabs. If none are there, don't go out. It's as simple as that. Four men in spacesuits entered the room, followed by two others. The leader of the group saluted. We're ready, sir, he said. Go out and get a look at the bodies, the colonel told the men, who were medical corpsmen. You know the procedure. Air and sand samples, too, of course. The leader saluted again, turned, and left. Wayne watched the six space-suited figures step one at a time to the wall, withdraw one of the metal tabs, and affix it to the outer skin of his suit. Then they went outside. Captain Wayne and Sherry James stood by one of the portholes and watched the six medics 
as they bent over the corpses outside. "'I don't get it. I just don't understand,' Wayne said quietly. "'What don't you get?' Sherry asked. "'Those skeletons. Those men have only been dead for two months, and they've been reduced to nothing but bones already. Even the fabric of their clothing is gone. Why? There must be something here that causes human flesh to deteriorate much faster than normal. It does look pretty gruesome, Sherry agreed. I'm glad we've been ordered to keep our spacesuits on. I wouldn't want to be exposed to anything that might be out there. I wonder, Wayne muttered. What? What's the matter? Wayne pointed to one figure lying on the sand. See that? What's that over his head? Why, it's a space helmet. Yeah, said Wayne. The question is, was he wearing just the helmet or the whole suit? If he was wearing the whole suit, we're not going to be as well protected as we thought, even with our fancy suits. Fifteen minutes passed slowly before the medics returned and five minutes more before they passed through the decontamination chambers and were allowed into the ship proper. A ring of tense faces surrounded them as they made their report. The leader, a tall bespeckled doctor named Stiebelman, was the spokesman. He shrugged when Colonel Peterson put forth the question whose answer everyone waited for. I don't know, the medic replied. I don't know what killed them. There's dry bones out there but no sign of anything that might have done it. It's pretty hard to make a quick diagnosis on a skeleton, Colonel." "'What about the one skeleton with the bubble helmet?' Peter Wayne asked. "'Did you see any sign of a full suit on him?' Stiebelman shook his head. "'Not a sign, sir.' Colonel Peterson turned and glanced at Lieutenant Jervis. "'Do you remember what the circumstances were, Lieutenant?' Jervis shrugged. "'I don't recall it very clearly, sir.' I honestly couldn't tell you whether they were wearing suits or bubble helmets or anything. I was too upset at the time to make careful observations. I understand, Peterson said. But the medic had a different theory. He pointed at Jervis and said, That's the point I've meant to make, Lieutenant. You're a trained space scout. Your psychological records show that you're not the sort of man given to panic or to become confused. Are you implying that there's something improper about my statement, Dr. Stiebelman? The medic held up a hand. Nothing of the sort, Lieutenant. But since you're not the sort to panic, even in such a crisis as the complete destruction of the entire crew of your scout ship, you must have been ill, partly delirious from fever, not delirious enough to cause hallucinations, but just enough to impair your judgment. Jervis nodded. That is possible, he said. Good, said Stiebelman. I have two tentative hypotheses, then. He turned to the colonel. Should I state them now, Colonel Peterson? There's to be no secrecy aboard this ship, doctor. I want every man and woman on the ship to know all the facts at all times. Very well, the medic said. I'd suggest the deaths were caused by some unknown virus or perhaps by some virulent poison that occurred occasionally, a poisonous smog of some kind that had settled in the valley for a time and then dissipated. Wayne frowned and shook his head. Both hypotheses made sense. Do you have any suggestions, doctor? Peterson said. Since we don't have any direct information about why those men died, Colonel, I can't make any definite statements, but I can offer one bit of advice to everyone. 
Wear your suits and be alert. End of part two.